0: Today's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by CaseFleet. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where CaseFleet comes in. CaseFleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, it, is, it is that time of year where some very exciting cases are being decided and argued at the Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about a couple of those today. But I just wanted to clue some people in on uh, a case that's flew under the radar a little bit. Yesterday, I read the very interesting opinion in the case of Godzilla v. Kong, uh and uh very interesting ruling uh <laughs> lots of lots of dig- lots of uh very complex legal theories at play sure. good stuff um but i thought I
2: thought that was a question before the Japanese courts currently. <laughs> Well, there's a couple of parallel sort of tracks of litigation going on. Um, I think it's and, definitely uh,
0: intentional infliction of emotional distress is, in it, is one of the claims.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. A little bit of a mixed ruling, I'll say, on its face. Um, Deals with but, many
2: issues of real estate law. Uh, yes. Sure. You know, acts uh, of God. Uh, definitely,
0: <laughs> torts are, are all abound in this one.
2: Yes. Uh yeah, so like I
1: say, mixed on its face, but I think keen readers of the opinion uh will be able to see what is sort of tacitly being advanced by the court. Highly recommend the reading there. So, yeah. All right, that's
2: enough Godzilla and uh King Kong stuff. Uh let's we got a good show before us today, I think. Uh we're going to talk about the big arguments at the Supreme Court over uh the NCAA and yep. amateurism and it involves a lot of antitrust stuff. The March Madness tournament is going on right now, so I think it's a, a great time to talk about it. But before we get to all that, let's talk about uh, a ruling we got today from the Supreme Court about uh, the way the federal government regulates media ownership. Uh, the court ruled this morning that the uh, on Thursday that the Trump era uh, Federal Communications Commission. Uh, was entitled to roll back regulations limiting um, sort of the way that uh, the, uh, uh, media outlets are consolidated in a given media market. It's very interesting ruling. Very interesting uh, sort of bigger issue um, that that I think we should break down.
0: Well, I think we probably have to start with some groundwork here. What rules were in question?
2: Yeah, it was a series of um, a series of rules. Created by the FCC in the 1960s and the 70s, um, that that were aimed at promoting competition and and local control and viewpoint diversity. The idea was to 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 prevent, you know, um, any single entity from owning too many radio stations, TV stations, and newspapers in a in a given market. But in 2017, you know, fast forward several decades, um, the FCC decided to scrap three of those rules, saying that they had become sort of outdated in today's you know digital media landscape. Um, one of these rules prevented uh, a single company from owning a radio station or a television station and uh, a daily paper in the same market. Another limited the total number of radio and television stations that an entity could own in one market. And the third one that we're talking about restricted the number of uh, local television stations that an entity could own in one market. So um uh, public advocacy groups sued to block this move they argued that it would um in you know this sort of battle over these rules has been going on for a long time there's a lot of issues with with um you know from the perspective of the challengers with why they should stay in place but this case really dealt with um that the fcc had rolled these back without considering um the harm it would cause to both female ownership of local media uh, outlets, but also minority ownership of of local media outlets. They said the FCC had not considered enough, you know, how this, this deregulatory effort would impact that. Um, and in 2019, the Third Circuit, a federal appeals court, agreed and ordered the FCC to go back to the drawing board, look at these, look at, you know, do more studying, find more evidence to support what they wanted to do in terms of this deregulation.
1: Uh, obviously there's a lot of implications, you know, with media consolidation is happening more and more and things like that. And there are various factors that you should consider. Uh, also this is, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get back to the merits in a second. Uh, just want to say very cool, uh, case name on this FCC versus Prometheus radio project. Sure. Uh, anyway, uh, we, uh, we got a decision. Um, what did they say?
2: FCC V Prometheus. Very. Yeah. uh, I mean, that's, that's a (laughs) banger in future citations. Uh, Sure. Sorry. So Um, what did they say? (laughs) so in uh, it was a unanimous ruling that was yep. written by uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh um the court said that the FCC had in fact done enough to justify this rollback they overturned that third circuit ruling um the, the basically what what they said was that you know the agency did not have what they called you know this perfect empirical or statistical data to back up what they were doing but that that was sort of that is sort of typical in day to day rulemaking that the the level of um you know, the the standard that the, that the Third Circuit and these challengers were holding them to, the court said, was too high. Here's the quote. The FCC considered the record evidence on competition, localism, viewpoint diversity, and minority and female ownership, and reasonably concluded that the three ownership rules no longer serve the public interest. Um, the... the Kevin, in particular, pointed to uh, you know, and this sort of echoed arguments um, that were made by the FCC. But they, he pointed to the the sort of dramatic changes that have happened in the media landscape since these rules were written. I mean, I don't think I need to tell yeah. anyone that things have changed quite a bit since the 1960s. Um, but you know, most notably in the last 15, 20 years, with the rise of the internet and and how that has weakened the 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 dominance of traditional local media outlets. Uh, The the argument essentially is that these companies need to be able to consolidate to stay competitive in this new era where they're all sort of dying as a result of the internet. The quote, the historical justifications for those ownership rules no longer apply in today's media market and permitting efficient combinations among radio stations, television stations, and newspapers would benefit consumers.
0: So what are we saying is the big impact from this one? Just that there's not going to be a rush on consolidation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you went to a Bloomberg terminal today, you'd see that the, you know, the stocks for for Nexstar and Sinclair and Hearst, the companies that own these local media outlets are are probably doing very well today because you, you know, the it is it clears the way for yeah. um, more consolidation amongst these, you know, local TV stations and small newspapers and um so, you know, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing sort of depends on who you ask. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the broadcast industry argues that this is necessary, that they are all these local outlets are dying because they don't have the ad revenue to stay competitive with, um, you know, in in the modern media ecosystem. Uh, the challengers in this case, Prometheus, as Alex mentioned, but also other advocacy groups, um, they say sort of... Qu- sort of the opposite, that that consolidation will, uh, that this ruling, sorry, will lead to just sort of unhealthy consolidation by these big national media conglomerates um, in a way that will, you know, hurt the diversity of, of, of news and information sources that are happening at the local level. Um, of course, we should mention it's sort of a thing that we say a lot in in on this show. In the last you know three or four months, there is a new administration in DC. Um, that with with that comes a, a new makeup for the FCC. It is now in in the control of the Democrats. Um, we will see if if they want to take a stab at this. If that's a priority for them, um, you know they could reimpose these rules. They could update them to try to address some of these issues that that people have raised rather than just fully getting rid of them, um, we will see what they try to do.
0: So for our second story today, um, I'm going to take us to coronavirus. It feels like we can't really have a show without some new development. And I thought this one was pretty interesting. Um, for the course of the past year, I think We've all heard lots of debates about wearing masks. You know, some people want to follow the CDC's recommendations, wear them all the time in public settings. Other mm-hmm. people have said that's unnecessary or pushed back to make a political statement. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, um, masks, masks have definitely been an adjustment. It's not the most pleasant thing to do. So I think we're going to continue yeah. to see people grappling with how to handle that in a professional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brings us to this development last late last week, a New York administrative judge dismissed a case on grounds that the plaintiff's attorney refused to wear a mask during jury selection.
1: I uh, love this story, uh, not because I uh, you know, want people walking around maskless in public spaces, but just because, uh, a- a- as you indicated, masks are just like such a like it's it's just like a cultural totem at this point and like all of the things that, you know, spring from it. Um, and there are lots of drawbacks not wearing masks is public health, of course, and then now we're talking about if you're a lawyer and you refuse to do it, you might uh suffer some professional consequences,
0: yeah, what I else is going on here? yeah yeah, this one's interesting to me because I think we've all heard um the more common tale, which is someone goes into a restaurant or a grocery store refuses yeah. to wear a mask and they get kicked out of the store. I think that's something we're all sort of used to hearing at this point it's It's a little more up in the air about what happens in the context of a court case, so this was a suit seeking damages for injuries sustained in a car crash. The plaintiff's attorney is a man named Howard Greenwald. who works at Chopra No Sereno. And for the first day of this uh, of these proceedings, he did wear a mask. But on the second day during jury selection, he opted instead to wear a face shield. He purports that he tried to wear a mask, but he was having a lot of difficulty breathing um, and talking to jurors across the courtroom required him to like raise his voice. And so he said this to the court. I became lightheaded. I had to sit down after two minutes. So, you know, this isn't the, the story of a man who thinks masks are not worth wearing. He's alleging that it was just for health reasons and comfort reasons he couldn't make it through and do what he needed to do as an attorney and have the mask on.
2: Okay. I mean, that seems fairly reasonable. What did the judge have to say about that?
0: Well, I mean, the judge really just wasn't really having much of this argument. He said... Um, And this is a quote from the judge. There's no question that the number one safety measure seems to be wearing masks. Then the judge went on to point out that it's court protocol. Masks have to be worn in all the courtrooms. Greenwald tried to get the case postponed over this issue. He asked for uh, uh, it to be moved to June. The judge wouldn't do it. Instead, he offered Greenwald the option of moving to a smaller courtroom. The reason for that is that he said Greenwald wouldn't have to raise his voice during jury selection. That might make things easier with the mask wearing. But Greenwald refused that and said he was sweating. He was physically unable to carry on. And so that's the point at which the judge just dismissed the case. Later on, you know, when asked about this move by the judge and whether or not it was okay, the Office of Court Administration said that this was supposed to be one of the first jury trials in Kings County Supreme Court in their civil term. You know, a lot of things have been closed down in a lot of courts. And they defended that as part of coming back, they had to have a mask requirement. This was their quote: "We are serious regarding the health and safety of our judges, non-judicial staff, court officers, and litigants." In that vein, as the attorney was unable to comply, the judge had no other alternative than to dismiss the action.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky one. Like you say, he's not. If this was not a match. This was not a matter of righteous indignation, or his he he feels his liberties are being infringed upon, or anything like that. I mean, I. I wasn't there. I don't know if his, you know, the veracity of what he's saying about struggling to breathe or anything like that. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's just another way that this mask conflict sort of manifests itself. How did Greenwald actually, I mean, how did he react to it?
0: Yeah. So instead of a reaction directly from Greenwald, we actually heard a pretty strong defense of him from a a partner at his firm, Samir Chopra. Chopra said that, um, Greenwald is in his late 60s. And so sh- the the view of what happened here was that the ruling was, quote, the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life in an abuse of power. So pulling no punches there. But what Chopra pointed out is that Greenwald and the firm are not anti-mask, as we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. But instead, she really pointed out the the physical aspects and said, like, between age and, and what was happening with him in the courtroom, he just wasn't able to do it. This is another quote from Chopra. The judge mocked him. Meanwhile, he's sweating profusely. If you felt his face mask when he got back, it was drenched. Chopra went on to say that this is also really a problem and something I think lawyers need to think about because it just doesn't impact just the lawyers trying to do their job. So Chopra added this. It's not only abuse to Mr. Greenwald, but the bigger issue I have with it is what the hell did Charmaine Goodell do to deserve her case to be dismissed? And that's true. This was an action of the attorney that led to the whole case being dismissed. So it definitely raises some questions about how serious courts are going to take this and and mask mandates there and what that means for the people who are trying to find justice. Again, this week's Pro Se is sponsored by CaseFleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. This software provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription.
1: Our main story is about the NCAA, but uh, for once, the Final Four is not the biggest college sports story in the country right now, at least in, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, this week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a what could potentially be a landmark case uh, over its limits on paying college athletes. Um, the NCAA made uh, some really uh, impassioned arguments at the high court to basically keep intact it's entirely amateur uh, structure of, of not paying players salaries, um, but it was really, really bombarded with questions from justices from all all corners of the ideological spectrum that um, many court observers uh, believe, you know, suggest that the college athletics model as we know it may
2: be on some uh, some shaky ground.
1: And uh, there was a lot of a lot of highlights uh, at the high court here.
2: This is a fun story because you get to figure out when whether people say amateur or amateur, which I've always <laughs> fo- thought to be a a strange pronunciation. But okay, so you know, I I, I have written about this uh, in yes, the past, yeah. and um, uh, it's I think most people know that college athletes are not paid. Sometimes stuff bubbles up with. Someone was paid when they weren 't supposed to be, or whatever, but yeah what exactly um, you know what 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 is at issue in this case that that is getting it before the high court
1: yeah, I mean I think it's good to talk about it at a conceptual level, so when you have sort of casual conversations with your friends or or people who are you know, or, or anyone you might talk to about the news. It's often, framed, uh, it's, it's often framed in wage and employment terms, you know, that the players should be compensated because they should be considered employees and get a cut of these huge profits that roll in uh, to the NCAA and various uh, college athletic programs all uh, all around the country. Um, but this case was brought by uh, a class of former players, uh, former college athletes, and it frames the issue in an antitrust context. It basically says that the NCAA's limits on player compensation, and the limits are often effectively, um, like, you can't collect a, a salary at all, that that is an anti-competitive market distortion. Um, there was a ruling in the Ninth Circuit last year that said the NCAA cannot set limits like that. Now, that restricted it to a specific set of um, goods that the, that the uh, universities may provide to the students But what's squarely before the court now is sort of, you know, really an existential argument about what the NCAA can restrict in terms of payments to players. And that's where we get into some some of the really fascinating dynamics that we saw play out when the arguments got underway up there this week.
0: Yeah, let's dig more into that because I do think it's really uh, fascinating that this is in the antitrust context and... How those antitrust laws work, it would, on the face of it, seem like the NCAA would lose. But there's a lot more to this story. So kind of break down what we need to know here.
1: Yeah, the thing that really stuck out to me as I was reading, um, I I was tuned into the arguments here and there when it when it happened on, on Wednesday. Um, but then I, I, reading all the coverage is that the, the thing that stands out is that the NCAA is not really arguing that antitrust law is on its side. They're not saying like... This this is uh, we're, we're above board here. They are instead asking the court to rule that it should not be subject to antitrust rules when it comes to the question of paying its athletes. Right. Um, they say in their briefs that they are not seeking an, uh, an antitrust exemption um, that the way I just described, that sh- sure sounds like at least a limited sort of uh, uh, antitrust exemption. Um, but uh in order to argue this, they are making arguments at the high court that are pretty that, that struck me as pretty sentimental. There were lots of lots of um sort of long statements from Seth Waxman, the sort of all star uh, Wilmer Hale appellate attorney who's representing the NCA about the need for the court to protect the 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 sanctity of amateur sports and that it should be um you know that you know I- introducing uncapped salaries will. Make this whole thing untenable, and you have an obligation to protect us in this regard—the um, beautiful game that we have. You're yeah, going to ruin it.
0: I mean, if you treat Supreme
2: us the Court. same as literally anyone else in the country, <laughs>
0: yes. The Supreme Court sometimes goes <laughs> for those kind of arguments, though, because there's a long history of baseball and arguing oh, yeah. the Supreme Court for antitrust exemptions. So this isn't untrod territory. Oh entirely. no, without like.
1: a doubt. Yeah, I don't mean to suggest that they're like out of bounds to go to to uh, take that tack, but it's just like it's very pointed when you see. Right. Right. Uh, the the arguments they're making. So anyway, um, on Wednesday when uh, Seth Waxman is up there making this case, he took some pretty severe body blows from all corners of the court. So the the Democratic appointed justices were pretty were pretty um, outwardly in support of paying players for their labor, which isn't a huge surprise. But remember, I'm we're talking about this in the context of an antitrust question. And when you try to argue in favor of market restrictions to a bunch of, you know, conservative leading libertarian types, uh, you can run into some problems here. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, one of the you know one of the more recent conservative uh, appointees to the court, uh, didn't mince words at all when questioning uh, Waxman. He said, "Quote." To pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing seems entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing.
2: So that's from Kavanaugh. You can't can't read the tea leaves too often at the Supreme Court from the arguments, (laughs) but you don't want someone to be describing your argument as entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing. Somewhat disturbing, yes.
1: Um, And he wasn't alone. They just, they just, none of them were really buying this basic argument that that the court has an obligation to maintain the the sanctity of an amateur sporting enterprise. They were really looking at this from the question of the law. Um, and at one point, Waxman said that uh, you know you kind of hear it in Kavanaugh's quote there, but he, he he kept saying over and over that the product would be would be made more unattractive to consumers if they were paying players. And Justice Amy Coney Barrett responded by essentially saying the same argument in somewhat uglier terms or starker terms. She just said, quote, that the argument amounts to, quote, consumers love watching unpaid people play sports. That's like her presentation of his argument. Um, Even Clarence Thomas got in on the action. Uh, He said, quote, it just strikes me as odd that the coaches' salaries have ballooned uh and they're in the amateur ranks as are the players. So he's kind of taken it from all sides there.
2: Yeah, I mean, when uh, you know, to use the term that you, you sometimes hear in in sports is that that felt like the dagger to me for this argument, right? That that you, you if you're going to say that we can't pay our players because we need to maintain we need to maintain this like wonderful situation we have but then you have these the the this sort of very active competitive market for these high-end coaches and their salaries are going up and up and up it's just hard to sort of square those two things I thought and and to have it come from Thomas and him him say like this doesn't make any sense I thought was just such a tough moment for them to come back from yeah definitely
1: I well it's It's funny when you, we're going to talk about reading the tea leaves in a second. You already referenced it. I've, it's, you know, we're talking about sports. I've always thought that like covering or writing about oral arguments is the closest that legal writers get to like breaking Uh, down game tape or something.
0: Definitely. And it's
1: like, you know, you know, you could, you could, you know, if, if me and Bill were in a booth, we'd be like. Look, Seth Waxman is one of the finest attorneys to ever argue before this court, but he did not have his fastball today. But Alex,
2: Alex, let me interrupt you really quickly, okay? (laughs) Listen.
1: (laughs) Clarence Thomas questions him on the coaches, and Waxman concedes the point. What's he doing? I don't know. Uh, Anyway. uh, So, guys, I mean,
0: I I do think, like, obviously, in the way uh, we're talking about this, Tough day for the NCAA. It was, yeah. But is it that simple? I mean, I, I'm a little reticent to ever say that one of these Supreme Court things is just so cut and dry.
1: Yeah, they, they, they really let him have it. I don't, I, I, I don't think we've misframed that at all because he was definitely uh, catching it from all corners there, like I said. Um, but it's 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 not such a clear-cut case. So like while, while every justice who spoke had some measure of skepticism about the argument, we got a little squishier when they started talking about the remedies and the ramifications of striking down the amateur model. And you hear this a lot in like academic contexts where it's like, okay, maybe this isn't so above board, but it's been going this way for such a long time. And if you if you unplug the dam, what happens now? Um, and that kind of came to bear in in the arguments. And here again, it, the, most of the reservations on that point came from something of a surprising place, the, the, the Democrat-appointed justices uh, were kind of hand-wringy on this point of, about, of, of, of remedies and ramifications. Stephen Breyer uh, took a pretty broad view and said, quote, I worry about judges getting into the business of how amateur sports should be run. Kind of eyebrow-raising, if you consider the ideology at play there. Sonia Sotomayor asked, uh, quote, how do we know that we're not just destroying the game as it exists? Which she is kind of just saying that that's that is somewhat supportive of what Waxman's saying. If you read that a certain way, she's speaking it just sort of extemporaneously there. So even though the NCAA certainly took a beating, you know, we know that the Supreme Court doesn't like to intrude uh, on, you know, matters of law or policy in too broad a way. They try to keep it as restrictive as they can as a general matter. Um, so it's kind of a mystery. There are some people, if you if you read coverage on this, some people think the justices might decentralize the NCAA's power and maybe kick it to the individual conferences to set rules on compensation or perhaps just gradually expand the limits on the types of um, things that players can receive money for. Um, but it's an issue that cuts across a lot of different ideological lines, as I think we've demonstrated here. And the uncertainty of it all, uh, I think, will raise the stakes even higher. Thank you.
0: Show is something offbeat, and Bill, I think you have one for us today.
2: Yeah, maybe we should turn, take it from offbeat to off base this week. Hey, uh, nice. Uh, also, Steve, curr- maybe
1: we could get some organ music. Uh, yeah, uh, bringing us in. That's <laughs> been added bit.
2: in post. It'll be fine. Yeah, that's great. Okay, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're currently recording on Opening Day, MLB yeah. Opening Day, and I thought so. I thought we should do a, a, a baseball story this week. So, um. Uh, it was a few weeks back we saw a California state judge dismiss a pretty unusual lawsuit. Um, it claimed that a former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher uh, had had his career destroyed by the Houston Astros and their fairly infamous now uh, cheating scandal that, that erupted into the news back at the end of 2019. Yeah.
0: Is it infamous, guys? Is it? <laughs> uh, Come okay. on,
2: Amber. You, I didn't, will say- you didn't pick up the strands of this story.
0: I did know there was a cheating scandal. Well, there you and go. I have exhausted my full knowledge of what happened. <laughs>
2: okay. I knew it existed.
0: Yeah, that's, and I feel proud of myself for even knowing that. I, so you're gonna have to fill me in, Bill. I really I am, don't know anything else.
2: I am very, I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, Thanks. So in in as I mentioned in late 2019, uh, it came to light that members of the Astros had used technology to steal signs in real time from opposing teams during the 27. Uh, 2017 and 2018 seasons um it's particularly the stakes were particularly high because in 2017 they won the world series so um you know a team that had been uh one of the best teams in baseball and yeah. in one year had been the best team in baseball was pretty conclusively found to be cheating now we should say uh you know teams players have been stealing signs in baseball since the time the sport was invented you try to in, during the game to sort of figure out what your opponent is doing but this was categorically not that uh the team was using these live camera feeds from center field that yeah. were then beamed to monitors in that, that they were mo- that they were watching which then allowed the Astros to use a signal um most famously they were beating on a trash can <laughs> to make a noise that would alert the the hitter at the plate to literally what pitch was coming next which yeah um i i don't think everyone out there who's not a baseball fan needs to know that if you know what what type of pitch is coming that that helps um i remember when those when i knew that (laughs) well yeah when those when when those videos started leaking out with
1: like the 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 field level mics it it was wild to hear and it was just like such like very obvious patterns
2: yeah and um but so I mean, this whole thing got sort of swallowed up by the pandemic, and and you know, baseball itself was postponed yeah, for sure. half the year. Yeah. And um, but it was a really big deal when it happened, and it it still is. I mean, the team's general manager and the manager, so really that the the team's whole leadership uh, was suspended over this. Um, the team was hit with a raft of very serious penalties. They had to forfeit draft picks. Um, uh, Two managers on other teams were fired over this because yeah. of their roles at the time. Years earlier, um, so it was a uh, it was a big deal.
0: I feel much better informed now, but I'm waiting for like the shoe to drop about a lawsuit because it's on pro se. So when do we get to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, everybody always says that the baseball is the national pastime, right? But I would argue that there is a there's a good case to be made that litigation is the uh, the the national pastime. It's the passion that gets us all. <laughs> That gets us all fired up. So um, uh, there were actually a bunch of lawsuits that were filed over this. It felt yeah. sort of vaguely reminiscent of that blown call in the NFC championship game with the Saints a couple years ago where everybody tried oh, to find yeah. a way to s- yeah. sue over that. But um, there were a bunch of season ticket holders uh, that sued the team claiming that they had been defrauded by by the cheating. Uh, there were a few... Uh, uh, people who had been betting on, on daily fantasy. Um, they sued the MLB arguing that the league had failed to ensure the integrity of the games that they were betting on. Um, that former general manager who I mentioned, he actually sued the team arguing that he had been, um, used as sort of a scapegoat and he had been unfairly penalized as part of the whole process. But, um, the case that we're talking about here it was filed by a former MLB pitcher named Mike Bolsinger. Um, who he 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 filed this lawsuit, and it really feels like poetic or this like Greek tragedy or something. He claims that he you know he so he he faced the Astros in in August 2017, right at the height of this, and it was one of the games that really got highlighted in some of the later mm. investigations where they were showing. You could really hear the trash cans. You could really hear the audio that was going on. So um, he Bolsinger goes out there and eventually he gives up four runs in just a third of an inning. He gets shelled. Um, after that debacle, uh, he was sent back down to the minors and he never made it back to the majors. So Bolsinger files this lawsuit uh, early last year that claims that the Astros, by cheating, had robbed him of his career. That this event uh, that his, you know, Shellacking by by the Astros in this game had caused him um, was not caused by him being bad or anything else, but it was caused by the team's cheating in very specific legal terms. He sued for unfair business practices, uh, negligence and uh, intentional interference with contractual and economic relations.
0: Okay, so as you guys know, sports is not my thing. That's well established on this but show.
2: But lawsuits are your thing.
0: Lawsuits are my thing. And Amber, this it's really. Would be, b- <laughs> this would be a good <laughs> movie, you guys. This yeah, would I know. be good. Like, I feel like I could really get into the narrative of somebody, you know, plucky guy gets a shot and then <laughs> this happens. Like, it's fascinating.
1: I'm trying to figure out if what's more tragic, losing your job because the team was cheating that you were playing or losing or or the guy who. Claims he had his comeback derailed because he fought with the guy who was on PCP. Uh, <laughs> oh,
0: but, both uh, are sad. Both everyone, are pretty sad.
2: Everyone should go to our landing page and control F PCP and go listen to that episode. I, I don't have the number. <laughs> yes. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's a good one. Okay. Um, but the case is toast now or what? The case was dismissed. Um uh we should give credit here uh this was not a law 360 story it was a story over on the athletic.com great sports website um, by a guy named Daniel Kaplan so um but yeah the uh in a ruling on March 17th um uh a California state judge dismissed this case ruling that there was they didn't really have jurisdiction to hear it um uh the judge said that that bolsinger was basically just trying to get a jury of sympathetic Los Angeles uh citizens that of course would be they would be sympathetic to him because the Astros in 2017 the year of the cheating scandal beat the Dodgers in yeah. the World Series the honestly
0: have... did he even need the LA people I don't follow sports at all and I'm pretty sympathetic it's sad
2: <laughs> I think you could I think he could have gotten some some Yankee fans here in New York oh sure, we're, pretty, yeah. we're pretty cheesed about it um <laughs> but no one uh, likes a
0: cheater I feel like it's no. just yeah
2: um, but, but, uh, so here's the power quote from, um, uh, I believe it was from, from a hearing where, where this case was dismissed, quote, every single person that would be a witness in this case lives in Texas. There is no single contact between <laughs> California and this case. I don't think you took a state out of the blue. You took the Los Angeles Dodgers out of the blue and perhaps thought it was that perhaps the jury or even the judge could feel badly about the fact that the Houston Astros won the world series uh
1: very interesting stuff i um i'm gonna consider filing legal action against the cubs because they suck and i think that they should be trying to cheat to get better and they are not exhausting (laughs) going
0: the opposite way
1: they're not exhausting all of their and they are inflicting emotional distress on me right you don't
0: don't comport to my nobody likes a cheater you're actually encouraging the
1: cheating no uh only when it benefits me personally but anyway
0: Wow. What a note to go out on to end this show. Sure. <laughs> die on that hill, Alex. That sounds good. Thanks yeah. for being with me today. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks a lot, Bill.
2: See you again next week, guys.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Zach Zagger, who wrote about that NCAA case, so check out his work over at law360.com, Emma Whitford, and also Kelsey Griffiths. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like our show, we'd love for you to leave us five stars and a written review that helps other people find us as well. Thanks and see you back here next week.